It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. C.S. Lewis. Sometimes it feels like our lives are like one long day. We keep getting off track, getting stuck in the muck of our own egos and distractions and responsibilities and disappointments are constantly threatening to bowl us over, rushing at us from every direction with the intensity of wild animals. And there are moments, too, that feel a lot like morning, thanks be to God, like Sundays, I hope, or a much-needed conversation with a dear friend, or maybe time alone, but they are moments of clarity in which we find ourselves able to listen to that other voice, to make room for that other point of view to flow into our lives despite all the noise. I'm talking about Jesus, of course, the presence of God. And it is other. It is different and distinct from the cacophony of voices speaking into our lives most loudly and most often. Everything about Jesus is other. Everything we think we know about power, about greatness, about authority, Jesus took it and turned it upside down. He was so contrary, he took the law itself and flipped it on its head, and we are called to do the same. We are challenged to reframe our being in the world, and from what I can tell so far, it takes constant upkeep. Constant recentering ourselves and reposturing our daily lives. And if we need a reference to understand what this looks like practically, we need only turn to Jesus. And if we need understanding of what Jesus was about in some, we can look to this discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And if we want to be sure about what mattered to Jesus most, we can look straight away to the Beatitudes, to these timeless teachings. And we need to look, right? We need to look. Our spirits are desperate for some divine gazing because we are exhausted. We are exhausted. And if we didn't have enough going on in our own hearts our own souls, and in our own personal lives, then all we have to do is look out into the world, and it feels like a total shit show, right? Like, I don't know how else to say it. Like, can anyone think of a better way to say it? Okay. So I tried to 
work around that, and I couldn't do it. <laughs> the chaos and anxiety in our society is palpable. Like, you can touch it. You can feel it. The division is so intense, and all this makes it really hard to feel safe and to want to be vulnerable in almost any context. Yet, we can't completely detach from all of this if we want to do kingdom work. If we want to defend what we know to be true about God, if we want to speak for and with those on the margins, if we want to tear down oppressive systems held up by bad theology, we can't detach. We have to face the day. But there's also like dinner to put on the table (laughs) and work and like your kids' soccer games. Oh, and the whole maintaining relationships thing. And it would be really, really nice just to do something for yourself every once in a while. And it's tiring. We, as a society, are drained mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And I don't know if you're like me, but I just constantly feel like I'm not doing enough. Is there a way to be in this world that makes space for our weariness? that acknowledges it? Is there a place of rest for our hearts? I believe there is. I believe that this way is best revealed to us through the life of Jesus and specifically through these beautifully simple words of the Beatitudes. We read them aloud three times through Lectio Divina, so hopefully the power of those words would sink into each of your lives in just the way you need it to this morning. The Beatitudes have a way of just washing over us, am I right? And giving us a sense of comfort and rest by giving us a taste of the things of God and then giving us access to those things by providing some direction for how to be in the world. And like Jesus himself the approach to all of this is totally other. Today, for example, we are talking about how to be angry. And we are looking specifically at verse 9 from the text, which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Doesn't that sound pretty? (laughs) But what does anger have to do with peace? And my answer is a lot. Anger has a lot to do with peace and peacemaking. The capacity for anger is complex. There are so many intersections. There are ways in which anger disrupts peace, of course. Like, for example, how it's the only emotion that has been socially acceptable, really, for men to display. Over the course of history, men have often been conditioned to funnel their God-given capacity to feel everything we all feel, shame, sadness, grief, fear, vulnerability, but all into this one emotion of anger. And this has not just hurt men, but it's created over time a culture of toxic masculinity in which the definition of what it means to be a real man is limited to this stereotypical caricature of manliness. And our generation, I believe our generation, is trying to overcome this and heal from it. But this is an example of what happens when anger stands alone. It disrupts peace. 
I also think of the way anger plagues our hearts in the midst of grief and loss and tragedy. My college roommate currently sits at the bedside of her seven-year-old daughter as she fights for her life with neuroblastoma. I can't even imagine it, being in the hospital all the time, separated from the rest of your family, the constant pricks and IVs and nausea and mouth sores and weight loss, seven years old, and not even just the cancer, but the trauma of it, the financial burden, the overall stress. I don't know what it feels like to be my friend navigating through this with her little girl, but I can only imagine that anger might be a part of the hodgepodge of emotions. As someone who's paying close attention to their situation, as someone who's praying for them, I feel angry about it. It's so unfair. And even in all my spiritual maturity of having faced tragedies in my own life, I still feel angry at God when things like this happen. Because when people we love are hurting and we are helpless, we get angry. Anger has a part to play in generational pain, in injustice and oppression over the ages. It doesn't just go away. People inherit that. I think of the societal wounds women carry that we've received from our mothers and our grandmothers and their mothers before them. Waking up to this wound has filled me with a rage I can't seem to quiet. I also think of people of color and other marginalized groups and the anger they certainly must carry within them every single day because these are the kinds of wounds that a person can only set aside if they can find a way to stop being themselves. In the past, I would take my light-haired, light-skinned nieces on outings, and I would make the self-deprecating joke that everyone probably thought I was the nanny. I projected an insecurity rooted in my brownness before anyone else could do it to me because of a lifetime of racist experiences. Then, jokes on me, I gave birth to a light-haired, light-skinned baby, <laughs> spitting image of her dad. And you know what? One day it really happened, a few weeks ago. Someone asked me if I was my daughter's nanny. If you need to understand how this is racist, I can talk to you after. <laughs> but when you go your whole life having experiences like this one, experiencing racism so subtle that even the offender doesn't realize it's racist and doesn't mean to be racist, you develop a certain amount of anger, and it stays with you and goes with you whether you like it. But the thing is, you don't have to experience unjust things yourself in order to feel angry about them. Anger on behalf of people who are hurting or who are mistreated is what God is literally all about. Flip through and read about all the times God gets angry in the Bible. I almost did it for you, but then I was like, that's boring. That's boring for me to just go through and list it all. It's in there. Go read it. It's so often on behalf of someone who is vulnerable. We know that Jesus got angry when he flipped the table, cleansed the temple. He wasn't 
just angry because the house of God was being misused. He was angry specifically because the poor, the vulnerable and marginalized and oppressed, were being religiously exploited. I look back not just throughout scripture, but throughout the course of history, and I don't see a lot getting done without anger without angry people pushing against broken systems, resisting oppressive paradigms, protesting corruption, acting out of their anger. It is not bad to be angry. Just as God often acted out of anger on behalf of the marginalized throughout the stories of the Bible, so we are compelled to do something productive with the anger we experience. What I'm trying to say is that all of this anger, anger that we already feel when our friends are hurting or when we are hurting, anger that we feel when we look out into the world and watch its aching and groaning and all of its brokenness, all this anger that rises up and out of us as a result of all of this is the absolute best proof that we are children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We desire peace so much that when it doesn't exist somewhere, we get angry because we were born to be peacemakers. And it is a part of our Imago Dei, our God-given nature, to get angry when peace is lacking. So what does anger have to do with peace? Everything. It has everything to do with it. Peace doesn't mean we stay quiet and accept things the way they are for the sake of the illusion of harmony. Peace means that we stop at nothing until all people know wholeness and fullness. Peace is the very work of God in this world, and it is our responsibility as children of God to be peacemakers, creators of peace, to work toward peace endlessly. And anger is not the antithesis of peace, but righteous anger is a catalyst for peace. Anger that is productive looks a lot like empathy in action. This, to me, is the definition of righteous anger. It is anger that is sandwiched between an overwhelming desire for peace. And the anger each of us inevitably carry should begin and end with this desire. So my advice is this. If the end goal of your anger isn't some form of peacemaking, throw it out. Get rid of it. If your anger is not driving you towards some sort of reconciliation, whether that be with yourself or with God or with another person or some combination, then that anger is not serving you. It is dead weight. Let it go. Be healed. But if your anger is righteous, if it is motivated by a deep wanting for peace, if it is compelling you to move, then don't just call yourself a child of God. Call yourself a prophet. Call yourself a prophet of God because that is what you are. In the last verse of the Beatitudes, Jesus calls everyone listening to him prophets. Do you know what a prophet is? My simple definition is a person who tells the truth. 
Prophetic anger always has the truth in sight because prophets are truth tellers by nature. And to tell the truth, to live the truth out in your everyday life, a certain amount of rage is required. It is required, but it is also just inevitable when we're listening. Something I find so interesting about this scene where the Sermon on the Mount occurs is that we know it's a whole crowd, and I've sort of always just imagined this huge crowd like Jesus having some sort of divine bullhorn and everyone's listening. But really, a huge crowd is just there. Like The text says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. There were crowds, and then there were the disciples, those who were listening closely, those who were intent on hearing this counter-wisdom for how to be from this holy man of God for whom they had just laid everything down to follow. There were the crowds, and then there were those who were listening closely. So... It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists of simply shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life, that life where everything is flipped on its head, come flowing in, and so on all day. Amen.